Welcome to The Working Capitalists. Welcome to The Working Capitalist and our series of conversations with working capital professionals. Hello, my name is Brian Shanahan. I'm the founder of Informata and TermsCheck.com. Today's guest is Brian Frampson from Citrus America. Brian, please tell people a little bit about yourself and what you do. Hi, good morning from from Florida. So I founded Citrus America in 2011 after identifying a market opportunity in the U.S. Prior to that, I worked for blue chip companies in various roles, a lot of them in finance as well as in operational roles, uh, covering consumer goods, automotive, industrial, and then moving into consulting and and then also various forms of packaging. I was working on uh, investment banking projects in mergers and acquisitions and found myself drinking orange juice at some of the local grocery stores in Vienna and realized it was a lot easier to get high quality orange juice in Vienna, Austria than when I visited my parents in Florida and realized there was something something amiss and then got into the industry. But just on the subject of working capital, I mean, you've worked in many, many different environments. And I always say this to people that there's no real handbook about the way you should do working capital or not do working capital. So what's been your uh, evolution on that particular subject? Well, working capital is when you learn it in school is just this very textbook type of a discussion about what's working capital and how do you define it on the balance sheet. And then when you're working for a company, I think probably almost nobody in the company really thinks about working capital when it's a big company, uh, unless you happen to work in finance or accounting or treasury of a large company. And then you think about it and then you try to get other people in the company interested in it and their eyes glaze over. It's not a very exciting topic for a lot of people if you don't make it exciting. And then that's in the in the large company sphere. Uh, I got heavily involved in projects to optimize working capital which gets you into topics on the inventory side, on lean management, and on the the accounts receivable side, you get into discussions about customer relationships. And on the AP side, you even get into vendor management topics, which then brings in other people across the company. And if you do it the right way, you can actually get them interested in, and excited about it. But for large companies, it's still theoretical. It's It's not... Some people are not living working capital every day. And now since forming my own company in 2011, working capital is something you you live, eat, and breathe every day. Because with a small company, it's all, it's all about the bank account. And uh, you don't have the big mothership corporation to pick up the phone and call them and say you need a little cash infusion. Uh, when you're running a small company and it's an entrepreneurial company growing, um, you're very much more aware of working capital. Yeah, I, I always say, because uh, obviously I run a small business too, uh, and uh, I always say the number one person I always have to keep happy is my bank manager. Yeah, And as long as uh, I'm in the black, uh, um, that's okay. If I was in the red, it would be very quickly not okay. And, and obviously watching it on a day-to-day basis is one thing where it starts to get challenging when you're running, when you're running an entrepreneurial company is, is looking out a couple of weeks, a couple of months, and what are your cash needs? You know, when you're when you're in a big company, you can really you have tools. You have an entire team of people who can do that for you, and you have lots of tools you can put in place. In a small company, it's 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 handled like everything else a little bit more uh, haphazardly if if you're if you're if you're not focused on it. And uh, 
Yeah, it's just something you 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 look at every every few days. You're on it. Yeah, and and just talking about the big company environment because that that's where we kind of met each other in in Austria. Yeah, um, you know, one of the things that I always find curious is why do particularly well even sometimes financial people don't get working capital. Yeah, but certainly non financial people uh, don't live and breathe it. I mean, wh- why do you think that is? It's a good question. I haven't thought about it, but I think I have maybe some insight when I when I really. Let me think how we, how we phrase this. You have finance people looking at financial numbers, and you have operational people looking at operations. There's a culture maybe where these people are not seeing eye to eye. So in order to manage working capital the right way, you have to combine the financial perspective with the operational perspective. And if you don't do that, you have a disconnect. So I think that that could lead to a lot of problems. So you you suddenly are in an area where you have to force your financial and accounting team members to interact more with the operational people to understand what their challenges are and how you can help them streamline any processes related to working capital. And and they need to look to the accounting people for training on these processes. What's similar or different? to managing working capital versus those other kind of corporate environments that you've been in before? Well, the the key to anything, whether it's a small company or a large company, is to have a reasonable level of reporting and reporting accuracy. So without the reports, without without a weekly or a monthly uh, status report, whether it's the bank account and or the balance sheet position, as well as some form of forecasting, it's like flying an airplane with no radar and, and maybe even smearing up the windows so you can't see what you're doing. Working man, working capital requires that you have some transparency into your numbers and a little bit of, let's say, future forecast potential. How's that, how's that different than in a, in a large company, which you'd expect to have much more in the way of resources to do this versus a small company? Well, I think the resources and the tools you have in the large company mean that you're getting a much more accurate picture of things. I think you can get, you can handle things a little bit more scientifically correct so that you're getting the real numbers and your numbers are probably backed up more on facts and your forecast is based on more people doing a better job of forecasting. So from that side of things, it's 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 easier, better, and probably higher quality where you run into, I think the issues would be is communication between different departments, uh, different systems. How do you bring it all together so somebody can make some decisions? In the small company, you don't have the tools available to you. They cost a lot of money and they require human resources to use those tools properly. So you you, you have a certain level of support. You have a lot more. Uh, you have a lot more gut reaction. You need to do a little bit more quick analysis. This is at least my experience. You have a better feel because you're because you and or your teammates, it's a much smaller operation. You have a less scientific feel for what's going on, but yet you have a gut feel for which customers are coming in, um, which vendors uh, are you talking to about what topics, and you you also know on a day-to-day basis what's happening in the operation. So you have a little bit more personal oversight and and gut involvement in what's going on. So you, you're, you're left with ultimately making a few more gut decisions. If you had not had the big corporate experience that gave you that awareness of working capital and so on, do you think that would have made a huge difference to running the business that you, that you run now? Yeah, I, I, 
you have to, I, I, I laugh, I ch I'm chuckling because I'm not sure if it's good or bad, right? It took a little bit to, to, to break myself of the big company habits. And I still find myself, it's, it's easy to sort of separate yourself off and go into your room and do your, do your little wonky accounting and financial uh, exercises. <laughs> but in the end, you realize you want to delegate it to somebody to go do. And then you're like, oh, wait, I've got to go do that too. So, so you run the trap when you're in a big company that you want to delegate things. And, and then you look around and you're like, yeah, I can't delegate this to somebody. It's something I have to do. And or then you need to take the time to train somebody who doesn't have that background so that they can help take on that task as well. So the answer is the training was very good and useful. The cultural or the shock issue is when you go from a large company to a small company, you have to make sure you have people on your team who can do what you need them to do. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I think about being in small business is that you, you have to be more of a jack of all trades um, for all sorts of subjects, everything, you know, we mentioned finance, marketing, you know, uh, selling technique, all sorts of things where when you're in the large environment, you're only responsible probably for one or maybe two things. Yeah. And, and I think it's uh, a problem for lots of people in small business that, you know, they, they get into their business because they, they have a passion for the product or service that they do, but then they don't necessarily have all those ancillary skills uh, which they will require at some point. And then the other thing is, y you mentioned passion. Passion for the product is one thing, but you also have a lot of passion uh, for the customer. So, you know, I wake up every day and the customer satisfaction is, is what we live for. So you want to serve the customer. So sometimes you have to make decisions on the fly that as a smaller entrepreneurial company you can make. In a large company, you might not make them because the, they're over their risk profile or... Um, you don't really know who they are and can you can you extend them credit or ship them something out hoping that they're going to pay you tomorrow or, the, or next month. But we have customers that really need product right away, whether it's a new juicer or let's say some spare part, they lost something or the machine's been in use for five years and they have they need to re repair something. It's, if, if they lose that juicer for a day, they, they cannot satisfy their customer needs. So the, the faster we react in supporting them, it, it, it's critical for our success. And that does require, you know, proper inventory management and accounts receivables. And we're, we're at that point now where we're implementing a more formal credit process, but uh, it's a little bit more of a, of, a, of a gut process in the beginning. Switching subjects slightly. I mean, listen, we've all lived through a little bit of a crazy year. Yeah. But um, I mean, from a business perspective, you know, how's, how's that been for you? Uh, well, it's been a challenge. That's that's for sure. So the the, the COVID virus, virus has been a, a big challenge. We've traditionally been focused very much on supporting the grocery industry. So grocery retail stores, we've done very well with that. We have not been too focused on food service until recently. And then at the end of last year, we started to make a more concerted effort into food service, meaning restaurants, hotels, et cetera, who we've serviced as a customer already over the past 10 years, but it wasn't a focus point. So we started to put time, effort, and money into that the end of last year and the beginning of this year, only to have COVID come up and find out all the restaurants and hotels were basically shut down for, for you know, quite a few months, as we know. It's a little bit touch and go right now, who's open, who's closed. So that's been a challenge. Also, the thing with, with COVID that we've been watching is we talked very much about the importance of having a credit policy. So with a lot of customers now, we're on a credit card first, please, type of a, a process. 
So we get paid for spare parts and for extra things before we ship them. Where we have industrial customers who have credit terms with us, we're definitely keeping a closer eye on payments and accounts receivable because credit risk has gone up immensely the past six months. We've also been pushing early payment discounts for some of those customers because we want to make it easy for them and give them a good reason to pay us quickly. So early payment discounts we found to be helpful. Okay, because it, it sounds then that you've, you've had to adapt quite a bit then over the last few months uh, to, uh, how do you say, keep things going, keep things stable. Yeah, Absolutely. So the good news is for us, we're in the food industry and everybody needs to eat and drink. The bad news is obviously a lot of the restaurants and hotels went into extremely limited operation, if not full shutdown. Grocery stores have been booming and the consumer loves fresh product. Fresh product, fresh orange juice, vitamins, minerals, all of these great things has meant our grocery stores have been doing a lot of juicing business, which means luckily for us on the business side, first of all, luckily for them, we stayed open through the crisis. Uh, we went to a limited uh, operation, but we were always here and we're always getting spare parts out to them and or technical support if they needed it so they can continue juicing. So for the first few months, I don't think we sold any machines for like a two month period, uh, meaning no wow. no new equipment went out, but our spare parts business kept kept the lights on and we helped keep the lights on at our customers who were juicing. So we kept the juicers running, made sure we were here for them. And then in May, yeah, I'd say in May, May and June, we started getting machine orders in again. And now the past few months, things have picked up nicely for us. Yeah, one, one of the things that has been strange for lots of people in 2020 is is uh, the art of selling. Yeah, And in many cases, not everybody, but a lot of us do selling, particularly with new customers, yeah, uh, face-to-face. And that's how we're going to get to know people and so on. So, uh, you know, for lots of people, that, that's been a problem. Um, I don't know. Has that been a, an issue for your business? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're going to have a very big meeting with some people in March, for an example, very, very, a very specific example. We're going to have a meeting with them. And uh, I was in Philadelphia at a at actually at a food event with chefs. And uh, I was supposed to drive down and meet somebody in the D.C. area for a meeting. And he called me on Sunday. Our meeting was supposed to be on Tuesday. He called me on Sunday to say, yeah, somebody has the flu. And this was in this <laughs> this was in the second week of March. I thought somebody has the flu. That doesn't sound so good. And then he and then he shot me a text later on in the afternoon <laughs> saying another person has the flu. I thought, yeah, guess what? We're not, we're not going to have that meeting. And that's kind of how it's been now. So we we continue to have some customer meetings, uh, but everyone's very mindful of who's healthy, who's not healthy. Uh, and we definitely have customers who have said, please don't come here. Let's arrange a video conference. Uh, and that's what we've been doing. And now we're we're definitely putting time and effort into online marketing tools. I mean, yeah, we've all heard it say about you know, the whole Zoom thing that everybody's doing some version of Zoom, Teams, Google, whatever it is. Uh, that a year ago it would have seemed completely fanciful, but but uh, you know it's it, what seems difficult to me, and I've seen this with uh, various conferences and so on that I've been to over the recent months, the virtual ones. Yeah, that it's it's very hard to strike up you know any kind of a personal relationship with people who who you don't know already. Yeah, yeah, that that's true. I, I'd say one of them is bridging the interpersonal relationship gap, you know, you have to meet them and get to know them a little bit. I think a lot of people are, are, I think a lot of people are getting used to that now. 
with these with these electronic discussions going on. For us, the challenge is still going to be, you know, we have competitors. We're, we're, we're in an industry where there are other where there are other other machines out there. And a lot of people have had very negative experiences with their with their other juicing equipment. And our juicers are truly different. And when you feel them and touch them and I can put a, a piece into your hand and you can see it live, uh, it makes a huge difference in the sales process. And then if we can actually make orange juice for you or for some restaurants, let's say lime juice, and you can taste it, you taste a difference. So obviously there's nothing that we can do right now in virtual selling that is going to let you touch our machines, hold the part in your hand and taste orange juice. But but the virtual selling and the online selling at least help, helps us get through to the point we get through an early stage of the sales process where now we can in some cases close the deal we can we can support them and close the transaction or we can move into a physical test phase but it's um yeah it it's it, it takes a little bit of electronic transactions before we get to the physical part and brian you know at some point this whole pandemic thing has got to end and people will debate about how long it's going to go on and so on but of all the things that have changed over the course of this year what do you think are the things that are going to stick on a more permanent basis versus we're going to go back to whatever the old normal was? One of the things that we see is a lot of people are eating a lot more fresh food. They're buying food to bring it home, uh, to prepare. They're, a lot of the consumers are becoming much more aware of the labels, what they're eating, what they're buying, what's good for them, what's good for the resistance. So for our business and the juicing side of things, I see this as, as a positive. I mean, there's lots of negatives, so don't get me wrong. This is a horrible event that I wish didn't happen. But as we try to look for the silver lining in the clouds, I think that people's perception and awareness of healthy eating has gone up tremendously, which is very good for our juice business. Uh, for us, we're all about making juice in the stores, at the grocery stores. Uh, so that's that's good on that side. So now when we talk about our equipment being in the stores, Hygiene is a huge factor. Everything to do with safety and hygiene has climbed up dramatically in the consumer's perspective, which makes easy equipment, clean, you know, cleaning the equipment, operating the equipment, managing the equipment. This is extremely important for our customers, the grocery stores, the restaurants, so that they can show the consumer how safe and easy it is for them to make juice and, and how healthy it is. I think from that perspective, I view this as a very strong positive in terms of in terms of health awareness, hygiene awareness. Yeah, I'd say, I'd, I'd say right now that that's a main thing. Where we see a little bit of a challenge is product delivery. We have a lot of customers that use our equipment for self-service strategies, meaning the end consumer can go into the grocery store and use the juicer themselves to make orange juice. That's limited right now because the health departments don't want grocery stores, for example, with salad bars and soup bars where you have multiple customers touching the same uh, utensils. So we're working on strategies to help our help our customers bridge that and uh, develop strategies to make sure that fresh juice is still being produced. So I see that as an ongoing thing as well, uh, also in the food industry. Again, safety, you'll see a lot more plexiglass, you'll see a lot more cleaning materials in in restaurants and in grocery stores. It's interesting because, uh, it, you know, after SARS happened uh, in Asia, and that's nearly 20 years ago, um, you know, it's now pretty normal for people to wear masks in public on public transport and uh, shops and restaurants and all that kind of stuff. 
um, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how many of those things that that we've had to adapt to in the in the in the last few months uh, will become norms. And you know, what you say about hygiene and things like that, you know, I'm sure a lot of these things people were doing, but maybe they weren't quite as focused on them um, as as they have to be now. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's true. I heard, I was on a, a webcast a few months ago where they were talking about what the restaurant industry would look like in the future. And it's very much in, in our minds that the restaurants who can afford to thin out their customer base and have fewer people in the restaurant at any given time and make sure that they're offering high quality product and they can price for that product, those restaurants are much more likely to succeed and outlive the, the outlive this virus and make it into the future. And But while they're doing this, the consumers are realizing that it's much more pleasant to go to a restaurant that's not overcrowded and they're pushing you in and pushing you out, but it, it, it's really a bit of a price premium. So the, the restaurants that can get a higher premium on the product are gonna do well. The restaurants that can't survive obviously are gonna have their financial issues. So that's where we see an opportunity for us because we help people upscale their restaurant experience with better cocktails, better salad dressings, better ingredients using using fresh citrus juices. But I think that's going to stick around. I think some of the restaurants that have done well through the through this event are going to be stronger. And obviously, uh, we're going to see a lot of bankruptcies coming, un- unfortunately. Okay, Brian. Well, listen, thank you very much for those insights. We've, uh, we've run out of time now, but uh, thank you very much. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining us in our series of conversations with working capital professionals. Look for us next time on The Working Capitalist. You have been listening to The Working Capitalists. 